I'm sure some of you may be thinking that I've been belaboring the subject of Holy Communion. We've been dealing with it uh, for several sessions now, both here in chapter 11, as well as earlier when Paul was talking about the worship of idols as being similar to the Holy Communion, that eating meat that was offered to idols was problematic because you cannot eat at the table of demons and the table of the Lord. And many of you may have been thinking that I have been belaboring this subject. Uh, and you're right, I am belaboring the subject, and for a very good reason. It's because there is so much misunderstanding about the concept of Holy Communion, and particularly among Protestants, that's the belief that it is simply just a memorial meal, that there's nothing going on in the event other than eating some bread and drinking some wine because Jesus ordered us to eat and drink it. This conception is a very Protestant, a very separatist Protestant conception. It's not the oldest conception of the meaning of Holy Communion. It's not the conception that has been present within the Church since the very beginning, nor is it the conception that is present within our particular denomination or indeed most Christian denominations. The idea of the real presence of Jesus and Holy Communion is a critical concept, and it's a concept that is core, central to the Protestant Catholic expression of the Christian faith. And we have here in 1 Corinthians, in a couple of places in 1 Corinthians, and we have covered them both now, we have here some critical information, a critical juncture, a critical proclamation by Paul concerning this event, this holy event, this event that is central to the Christian life, this event that is central because it not only points us back to what Jesus did on the cross for us nearly 2,000 years ago, it is also critical because it reconnects us to that event. It, it reconnects us to his offering of himself. It reconnects us to that one event on the cross when Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. It's not just a meal. It's not just a memorial. It's not just an empty ritual. It's not just something that we do because Jesus ordered us to do it. It is an actual event in which we are brought back into membership with the body of Christ, with each other gathered around the table, with Christ Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, with Christ Jesus coming to be with us and within us. This is critical stuff, my friends. This is, this is the central core of the Christian faith in action, placed into visual representational action. It also happens to be my area of theological specialization. And that's, that's a good reason, <laughs> that's a really good reason for me to want to focus in on this. This is the area in which I did my doctoral dissertation. This is the area where I am a specialist. Hence, this topic is critical critical to me personally. It's critical to me in my religious faith, in my walk, in faith following Jesus Christ. It's critical and has been critical in the life of the Christian church for almost 2,000 years. It was so critical, so important, so central to the worship life of the church, in fact, that the Gnostics ridiculed it. 
I mean, after all, what it meant to be a Gnostic was that you wanted to shed yourself of the things of this life, shed yourself of all physicality, and all physicality is negative, it's awful, it's evil, and you want to get rid of it. And hence they depict Jesus as in this Gospel of Judas, this spurious uh, second century forgery, claiming to be from Judas, it was actually written by a Gnostic in the second century, uh, they place into Jesus' lips and actions ridiculing of the sacrament of Holy Communion, ridiculing. He, he laughs in the Gospel of Judas. He laughs at the apostles. He laughs at Peter as they are lifting up bread and thanking the creator of the universe for creating it and them. He laughs at them. He ridicules the very concept of Holy Communion, the very concept of the Word made flesh. This is my body. This is my blood. This, these concepts which are central to the Christian church, to Orthodox Christianity, of which we are a part, was absolute anathema to the Gnostic Christians. They hated it. Hence, they do not have a Eucharistic celebration as we understand it. To them, the idea of Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, in physical elements, was pure nonsense to them. And hence they depict Jesus laughing at them and ridiculing them. And ridiculing them for worshipping the God, the creator of the universe. After all, that God is not a good God. It's an evil God. It's not the father of Jesus. It's the Demiurge. The creator of the universe did a bad thing when he created the universe. And that's what the Gnostics believed. They were very much anti-Jewish in their thinking. The idea that the Jews worshipped the creator of the universe was to them laughable. And the idea that some Christians would worship that same God was laughable. Jesus came to teach us that that God, the Demiurge, is an evil God, kind of like Satan, and did a bad thing when it created the universe. Whereas the Father of Jesus, the true high God, the true master of all that is, wants us to escape from the physical trappings of this life. And Holy Communion speaks utterly against that concept. Hence, they depict Jesus as ridiculing it. Holy Communion is central. It is central to the Christian faith. Anyone who says it is not does not understand what Holy Communion is about. The sad truth is that most Christians do not understand what Holy Communion is about. Even smart, intelligent Christians, theologians, can get off base, can go astray, in their understanding of Holy Communion. Even those who believe Holy Communion is very important as a memorial meal and celebrate it weekly as our friends do down here at the Church of Christ, they can get off of track by simply viewing it as a good work, not as a sacrament, not as a reconnection, a remembering of us to Jesus Christ our Lord. So today, I want to take a few moments and I want to talk about conceptions of Holy Communion. And there are two concepts with regards to Holy Communion. Concepts which are reflective of much theological debate throughout the centuries and during the Reformation formed a big, huge portion of the debate. So, okay... God, that's how I like to depict God. Table with 
some bread and a communion chalice. All right. And there are some guys and gals gathered around the table. This is a, a stick figure representation okay, of Holy Communion. Up to this point, all Christians are fine with the idea. We gather around the table. This is the congregation of the faithful. See, there's little eyes and a nose and a mouth. They gather around the table. We gather around the table and we worship God, who I depict in this cloud up at the top with God written in it. And we've gathered around the table in worship. Now, during the Reformation, an idea rose up. An idea that is <laughs> kind of Gnostic in, in some respects. The idea that, in fact, in Holy Communion, we don't have anything going on other than us obeying Jesus' commandment when he said, do this as often as you drink it, do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. And this idea grew up that, in fact, what's going on here is simply an intellectual exercise and a physical obedient uh, action to what Jesus ordered us to do. And when we gather around the table of the Lord and receive Holy Communion, it's not anything present in the bread, it's not anything endemic to the cup, to the wine, that's important. What's important is us gathered together around the table and God sends His grace directly to those who are gathered around the table. All right? So we come and we worship together and when we receive Holy Communion we are doing so in obedience to God's orders, to the orders of Jesus Christ. And God's grace God's grace is conveyed to the believer when they obey, directly. Not through any instrumentality, not through the elements, but directly from God to the believer. There is no intermediary element at all. Not scripture, not hymn singing, not prayer. It comes directly to the believer for faith. Right. This is known as Zwinglian theology or the Zwinglian understanding of Holy Communion. It is also known, properly spoken, as ordinance theology. ordinance theology. The idea that God gave an order and the people carry it out. All right. So, what we have here is an idea that rose up during the Reformation. All right. An idea that rose up during the Reformation an idea that is critical in the fights, particularly uh, between Luther, Melanchthon, and Zwingli. And I won't go into them at this point in time. 
The Calvinists and the Lutherans tended to accept something different than this. Zwingli was truly a separatist in that he believed that the Roman Catholic conception of instrumentality in Holy Communion needed to be jettisoned as well as the concept of transubstantiation. So, he proposed this idea, that it's not the table that's important. It's the obedience, the faith of the believer. Now, he's right. The faith of the believer is important. But he makes communion into a work, into a good work. Not into necessarily an act of faith, although you could, in a positive sense, make that argument. He most, most critically makes it into a work, an act of obedience. Jesus said, do it, therefore you do it. No ifs, no ands, no buts. All right? That's Winglian or ordinance theology. It's the position of our friends over there at the Church of Christ. It's the positions of our friends over at First Baptist. It's the position of those Christian denominations that do not consider themselves part of the Catholic um, Church in the Protestant Catholic formation of it. All right? Now, have rest all those lines. We've got God up here at the top. We've got the table still. We've got the people all gathered around the table as before. All right? We've got the bread. We've got the wine. We've got God at the top. People gathered around. Same as before. Worshiping God. Worshiping Jesus Christ. God's grace falls not directly to the believer, but instead to the table. And then from the table to the believer. This is the idea called means of grace theology. Sacramental theology. Means of grace theology, sacramental theology, instrumentality theology. The idea is that God utilizes instruments to communicate to believers His grace. It doesn't necessarily deny that God's grace could fall directly upon a believer. That would be a denial of omnipotence. No. It's the idea, it's the concept, which you can prove throughout Scripture again and again and again and again, that God utilizes instruments for communicating His grace to believers. Fundamentally speaking, you could put anything in the middle here. Not table, bread, and wine. You could put the Bible. You could put prayer. You could put worship itself, fundamentally. You could put the preaching of the Scriptures. You could put the study of the Scriptures. You could put fellowshipping together. You could put baptism in there. You could put remembrance of baptism in there. You could put any one of a million or more means of grace in the middle here as the instrument through which 
God communicates His grace to us. And preeminently, in that list of things, that list of instruments, preeminently, sacramental theology proclaims the cross. And the sacrament of Holy Communion is the most significant act of the church, sacramentally speaking, because it, doing it in remembrance of me, eating and drinking the elements, my body and my blood, in remembrance of me, doing so reconnects us with the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the core concept known as sacramental means of grace, instrumentality theology. There are only two ways of viewing Holy Communion. There are only two ways. Firstly is the Zwinglian conception of memorialism and ordinance theology. Jesus said it, therefore you do it. And God's grace falls not through the instruments, but by directly onto the believer. The instrument is irrelevant to them. You could have almost anything in the middle. It wouldn't matter. Jesus said, do it, therefore you do it, but God's grace doesn't fall through it. It falls directly upon the believer. Uh, just Jesus in me conception is the idea we're talking about here. This is means of grace. Th- uh, this is antithetical to means of grace theology. Means of grace theology teaches, instrumentality theology teaches, uh, Catholic Orthodox theology teaches that God's grace comes to us through instrumentality, through prayer, through the scriptures, through the singing of hymns, through the worship of God, through the fellowship of the believers together, through the laying on of hands, through the healing touch of others, through the many gifts of the Spirit that we'll talk about uh, over in the next chapter, in, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and many other means of grace. Through holy baptism and through holy communion, we have the means of grace, the instrumentalities through which God communicates to us His grace. I will make you an argument that there's no such thing as a grace that comes to anyone apart from an instrument. Uh, Some people have tried to show me, to demonstrate to me that grace can fall directly upon someone without them without there being an instrument for them to receive it. And every time they've tried to do that, I can usually find an instrument somewhere in the process. There is usually an instrument somewhere in the process. For instance, prevenient grace. Well, it comes directly upon every person from the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no instrument in between. Yes, there is. There's the cross. And on top of that, not only is there the cross, But then there's the people who tell you about the cross and the Holy Scriptures that tell them and you about the cross and the hymns that we sing that tell them and us about the cross. There are many instruments present to mediate, to convey the grace of Jesus Christ. Now this conception, this idea, is part and parcel of how we therefore understand the real presence of Jesus in the sacrament of Holy Communion. Our friends and brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church understand real presence and instrumentality in the sense that 
the bread and the wine, while they maintain the outward appearance of bread and wine, inwardly their ontological substance becomes the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Because he said, this is my body and this is my blood, and they take what he said seriously, they believe that the bread becomes his flesh and the wine becomes his blood. And while they still look like bread and look like wine, they still smell like bread and smell like wine, they still taste like bread and taste like wine, nevertheless our Roman Catholic friends believe that the bread and the wine are the body and blood of Christ. And then when you eat and drink of those elements, they are receiving into themselves the real presence, the grace of Jesus into their lives. Now, we don't understand sacramental theology that way. We don't understand communion that way. Now, we don't understand Holy Communion that way. Instead, we have an understanding that it lifts up the mystery a bit more. In fact, we, in the United Methodist Church, we talk about it as being the holy mystery. But we share this concept in common with our friends over in the Anglican Communion, in the Episcopal Church, and in many other denominations, although the Lutherans talk about consubstantiation, that with the bread and the wine you eat the body and blood of Jesus. And with your mouth you eat Jesus. Uh, with your mouth you eat bread but with your faith you eat Jesus. And that idea is actually a pretty good idea. The concept is not necessarily wrong. It's just not quite the way I would put it. I prefer Wesley's conception and, and the, the approach that Charles Wesley placed into his hymns. Now, you can, there are many places to look for Methodist sacramental theology and Anglican sacramental theology. You can look in the Great Thanksgiving, which we pray on Sunday mornings before receiving Holy Communion, and you can see some of our theology behind Holy Communion, particularly in the consecratory prayer. But much of our theology about Holy Communion is contained within our hymns. For instance, if you take a look at hymn number 616 in our hymnal, it's a classic Charles Wesley hymn, which he wrote in 1747, entitled, Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast. And in it, he writes, Come and partake the Gospel Feast. Be saved from sin in Jesus' rest. O taste the goodness of our God, and eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now that is very Catholic sounding, and it is indeed... Catholic sounding, and he doesn't ameliorate it any. He, he gets stronger in verse 4. See him set forth before your eyes. Behold the bleeding sacrifice. His offered love make haste to embrace, and freely now be saved by grace. In this hymn, in Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast, we have some of the Wesleyan theology, a conception of Holy Communion, articulated. The bread and the wine are his body and blood. They are his body and blood. We as Christians affirm that. There, there are some other hymns by Wesley that help to explicate that a little further. 
One of those hymns is, Oh, the Depth of Love Divine. Hear these words. Oh, the depth of love divine, the unfathomable grace. Who shall say how bread and wine God into us conveys? How the bread his flesh imparts. How the wine transmits his blood. Fills his faithful people's hearts with all the life of God. Who shall say? Who can possibly say how God is conveyed into us? Who shall say how bread and wine God into us conveys? To rewrite that into more modern English, who shall say how the bread and wine conveys God into us? It's a question. Who shall say how bread and wine conveys God into us. How the bread his flesh imparts. How the wine transmits his blood. Fills his faithful people's hearts with all the life of God. Right there you have in one verse the totality of our understanding of Holy Communion. And it's a question. And it's clearly means of grace theology. Somehow, and, and this hymn goes on to express the mystery and never explains how, it's simply a mystery. The bread and the wine convey to us God. The bread and the bread imparts to us the flesh of Jesus. The wine transmits his blood to us. And I love that word, transmits. Transmits. When you talk on the telephone and you're listening to a voice that's being transmitted to you over airwaves or over wire, are you actually hearing that voice or are you hearing the recreation of that voice, the representation of that voice? the making present of that voice, even though that voice is far away. You're hearing that voice being generated, being transmitted to you through those lines. And you hear it, and you comprehend it, and you understand it, and you recognize it, but that voice is actually on the other end. It's being recreated on your end. And there's a similar conception here, where the bread and the wine become conduits through which the the, the body and the blood, the flesh and the blood of Jesus are transmitted, conveyed, transported to us. Listen to verse 2. Let the wisest mortal show how we the grace receive. Feeble elements bestow a power not theirs to give. I mean, bread and wine cannot give have no endemic characteristic of themselves to be able to, to give the, the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Bread and wine are simply bread and wine. They symbolize sustenance. They symbolize food. They symbolize drink. And in that respect, and in that respect they are sort of um, types of 
of how Jesus is our sustenance. And there is a typological interpretation of Holy Communion, which I have championed as an understanding for real presence, but we're not going to get there tonight. Look, listen to verse 3. How can spirits heavenward rise by earthly matter fed drink here with divine supplies and eat immortal bread? Ask the Father's wisdom how Christ who did the means ordain angels round our altars bow to search it out in vain. Even angels don't comprehend how the grace is transferred unto us through these elements. It's simply a fact that they are. Listen to the fourth verse. Sure and real is the grace, the manner be unknown. Only meet us in thy ways and perfect us in one. Let us taste the heavenly powers, Lord, we ask for nothing more. Thine to bless is only ours to wonder and adore. We are called to receive Holy Communion as Christians as a means of grace, as a method by which God's love and presence and power is conveyed unto us. That love and presence and power can come through the singing of hymns like, Oh, the Death of Love Divine, written by Wesley. It can come through the reading of Holy Scripture. It can come through fellowshipping together. It can come through prayer. It can come through many means, many means unarticulated here. But preeminent in the means of grace, as are identified in Paul's writings, is Holy Communion. And the church in Corinth was disrespecting the event. As we've already discovered, they were partaking without discerning the body and the blood of Christ. They were taking without discerning his real presence in their midst. They were taking without discerning, without respecting, without accepting Jesus in their fellow believer. Some were coming and stuffing themselves and getting drunk on wine, and then others were coming with nothing. And so that when they then came together for Holy Communion, for the Lord's Supper, those who were drunk could not possibly discern the real presence in the sacrament itself and the event that they were participating in or in their fellow believers at the table. They were not discerning the Lord's body. And Paul was pretty clear about what happens when one eats and drinks not discerning the Lord's body. We talked about how it has nothing to do with one's uh, righteousness, with one's uh, worthiness. One cannot be worthy to partake of Holy Communion. One can never be worthy to partake of Holy Communion. Partaking of Holy Communion is something that we must do because we are unworthy, because we need God's grace, because we need to be reconnected to the cross and to the grace that flowed from it, because we need His healing presence in His body, because we need His life-transforming presence in His blood, because we need Jesus, we must come to the table. But they were coming not discerning this. They were coming not discerning the body. And because they were coming and not discerning, something critical was happening. I want you to take a look at the handout that I passed out. You'll notice 
I've written on here the passage at the top of the page that we're going to look at. I then broke it down into a couple of sentences and some critical words. Paul writes, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, i.e. they've died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But we are judged. We are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. That's pretty tough, isn't it? Take a look at the first sentence that I have broken out and put down here in Greek. Hagar estheon kai pinon krima yato estheai kai pine me diakrinon tosoma. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The word here that's critical is this word krima. Krima. Krima is, in this case, a noun. It's neuter. It's singular, and it's in the accusative case. And it means judgment, decree, or a decision. It's a simple judgment. It's a legal term, but it's a simple judgment. When I w was young and I misbehaved, and I received punishment for my misbehavior, that was krima. It was a judgment or a decree or a decision. You were out late, Therefore, you will be grounded for two weeks. That is a judgment, a decision, or decree. Levied by the ultimate ruler in my mom and dad's house, which was my mom or my dad. And that's krima. All right? It's usually a temporarily defined, limited judgment. Look at the next sentence. Hinem me soon to cosmo katakrithomen. Katakrithomen. That's a lovely word. It's in the aorist. And that really, it, it, it looks kind of strange. It comes from katakrino, which is the verb form. And here in the sentence, it is a verb. It's first plural, aorist, passive, subjunctive, meaning to condemn. Pronounce the sentence after determination of guilt. Used especially of ultimate sentences like death. All right? An ultimate sentence. Katakrino. Kata, coming from, it's a preposition. It means down, upon, toward, against, someone or something. 
along, over, through, in, upon, during, throughout, in total, also according to, in accordance with, in conformity with. It is a preposition that, when it stands alone, has all of these different meanings and more, depending upon context. And if you remember what I've often said, in Greek, context is absolutely everything. And that is true here. When you attach it onto a word, it has a more limited conception because it applies to that word specifically. Here we see kata being applied to krima. Actually, it's in the verb form, krino, for judgment. And here it means ultimate, or total, or complete, or pressing down upon absolute judgment. Katakrima, katakrino, in the verb form, katakrima means ultimate, complete, and total judgment. We are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, Paul wrote, so that we will not be katakrima, uh, will not be katakrino, uh, literally katakrithomen, so that we will not be ultimately judged along with the world. That's the penalty that is being spoken about here in 1 Corinthians. The penalty for not discerning the Lord's body is krima, temporary punishment. So for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and the number have even died. I mean, krima, temporary punishment, can go as far as death. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be limited to just this life. It can go all the way to death. But it's not speaking about an eternal or ultimate judgment. It's a temporary judgment. Even in this life, even if it does go to death, it's still temporary. It doesn't affect eternity in that sense. It is a temporary punishment. And God gives those who have not discerned the body and blood of the Lord in the way that he's being uh, identifying here in First Corinthians, Paul is. God gives to the people who do not discern the body and the blood of the Lord, krima, temporary, temporal, judgment, decree, punishment. Some are weak, some are sick, some might have even died from it, but it's temporary, krima. And we receive krima when we fail to discern the body and the blood of the Lord in Holy Communion. Krima is the punishment for it because that is supposed to hone us, to, 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 to direct us to the importance of this event so that we will not receive katakrima, ultimate, eternal, total, pressed down upon judgment. If you continue in, in other words, the implication is if you continue in this failure to discern the body and blood of the Lord, if you continue to divide yourselves amongst yourselves and refuse to gather together in one body, if you continue this sin, this refusal to pay due respect to the sacrament, this, this desire to have it your own way at the table of the Lord, if you continue this, you get, you have the danger of falling all the way out of the church. This is the implication. You have the danger of falling all the way out of the church, all the way out of the body of Christ, and receiving katakrima, 
But so that we don't have that risk of receiving katakrama, God gives us krima to hone and help us to recognize that we need to change this, we need to fix this, we need to pay due respect to the body and blood of the Lord, we need to pay due respect to the event that's going on here, we need to pay due respect to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and engage in this sacrament with the proper mentality amongst ourselves, so that we don't receive krima and so that we don't receive katakrima. But we receive krima to punish us here and now, so that we won't receive with the world katakrima later. The implication is, is that we could receive katakrima if we continue in this sin. And this idea, this idea of receiving krima if you disrespect the body and blood of the Lord, is part and parcel of means of grace theology too. The idea that what's going on at the table of the Lord is real. It's not just an act. It's not just an empty ritual. It's not just a memorial representation. If it were just an empty memorial representation, a memorial meal, where would the crema come in? How could that function? Why would it be important to pay due respect to the real presence of Jesus in your midst? You don't even believe there is real presence in the sacrament. You might believe there's real presence in your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you don't believe there's real presence in the sacrament itself. It's just bread. It's just wine. What does it matter? Let's get drunk. And that's the attitude that this entire chapter is speaking against. And this whole passage here about krima, receiving krima so that you don't receive katakrima, is actually coming from this way of viewing communion as a means of grace. And when you disrespect the means of grace, there are consequences. We are not Calvinists. We believe it is possible to reject the grace of God. It is, re it is possible to not utilize, not employ the grace of God in our lives. It is possible to say no to the grace of God, to disrespect the grace of God. That's what they're doing here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. They're dis disrespecting the grace of God and as a result they're getting krima. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a Calvinist because you can prove through Scripture and this is one of them that it is possible to say no to God's grace and that's exactly what these people were doing. They were saying no to God's grace and for that they're being punished. They are receiving krima so that they won't have to face later Katakrima, ultimate, eternal judgment or damnation. All right, now there's one, uh, there's an interesting translation I want to look at in connection with this. It's, this is, and we're going to look, use it a little more in the future, it's the Amplified Bible. A lot of people don't like it. It is definitely a paraphrastic interpretation, but they often do a really good job. Listen to this. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning and recognizing with due appreciation that it is Christ's body, eats and drinks a sentence, a verdict of judgment upon himself. That careless and unworthy participation is the reason many of you are weak and sickly and quite enough of you have fallen into the sleep of death. For if we searchingly examined ourselves, detecting our shortcomings and recognizing our own condition, we should not be judged and penalty decreed by the divine judgment. Verse 32. 
But when we fall short and are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined and chastened so that we may not finally be condemned to eternal punishment along with the world. You can hear how they have translated the difference between judgment, krima, and katakrima, here, eternal punishment. <laughs> you see how they handle that? It's brilliant, actually. But when we fall short and are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined and chastened so that we may not finally be condemned to eternal punishment along with the world. That's how Paul, that's how the Amplified Bible translates Paul as dealing with the problem of disrespect at the table of the Lord. And it only makes sense, my friends. I know some people will disagree with me on this. But it only makes sense. This whole Pauline conception of Holy Communion only makes sense from within the context of means of grace theology. It only makes sense if we have a conception of the real presence of Jesus in Holy Communion, not just in your fellow believers, but in the event itself and in the sacrament, the, the elements, the bread and the wine. Means of grace theology, instrumentality theology, is a fundamental aspect, an underlying aspect to what Paul says in Scripture. It is implied throughout the passage dealing with the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. You don't eat at the table of demons and the table of the Lord. You cannot receive into yourself demons and receive into yourself the Lord. You see, that conception implies, it doesn't just imply, it states outright that in the sacrament of Holy Communion you are receiving Jesus. All right? We agree. And likewise here, when Paul gets to this point about eating krima so that you don't receive katakrima, if you disrespect the body and blood of the Lord, if you do not discern the body and the blood of the Lord, you eat judgment to yourself, you, you receive krima, you eat krima to yourself, you judge yourself by doing so. That conception, the idea that when you eat and drink you can receive prima, is implying that there's something real going on here. It's not an empty ritual. It's not a formalism. It's not a memorial meal only. It is a real sacramental event, an instrumental event in which God's grace, God's real presence in Jesus Christ our Lord comes to us. Uh, you could make an argument. I, I, I'm willing to make the argument that when you treat Scripture the same way, with disrespect, not recognizing that it is the presence of Jesus, it contains and communicates to us the very Word of God. If you treat it without that respect, without that love, without that reverence, uh, you receive karima. If you treat the body of Christ without the proper reverence for the real presence of Jesus, you run the risk of receiving prima. If you treat with disrespect a brother or a sister and treat them as if they are not Jesus, 
you run the risk of punishment, of this kind of chastisement, of krima, in order that we might not receive katakrima. It's interesting how sacramental theology ends up touching a broad spectrum of the Christian life. Copyright by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. Visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.